Would you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4? We're preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're at chapter 4, verse 17 uh, this week. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse 17. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. For this reason, I have sent... I'm sorry, thank you. (laughs) Bird brain me. Yikes. A word of explanation. We made a decision that we're going to stand when we read the word to show our submission and honoring for God's word. And I always forget. So that's the reason for... Did you go, eh? Who did it? Was it Elliot? Thank you, Elliot. I love you. The bird up in the cage. (laughs) Thank you, dear brother. All right. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, or I should say, not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. Was that verse written for Bloomington or what? Think of the university. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now this text begins with the statement, For this reason I have sent to you Timothy. So what is the reason? Why has he sent Timothy to the church of Corinth? Well, you go up a couple of verses and you see the reason. The Apostle Paul says in verse 15, For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. And so when he says in verse 17, For this reason I've sent to you Timothy, the reason is for them to imitate him. He's sending Timothy so that Timothy will help them to imitate him. The Apostle Paul had sent Timothy to them to help them obey the command he'd just given them, be imitators of me. Timothy was to lead them back to the imitation of their beloved father, Paul. And note the strong bond shared by both the Corinthian believers that he's writing to and Timothy, the one he's sending to them. They all share the fatherhood of the Apostle Paul. The Corinthians have the Apostle Paul as their father. Again, verse 15 You would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. So Timothy has the apostle Paul as his father. Verse 17, Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Timothy is the apostle Paul's beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And now speaking of the Corinthians, he is their father also. Now, here's a question. How does a son honor his father? Well, he honors his father by imitating him. How does a son honor his father? He honors his father by imitating him. 
Now, immediately when I say that, many of you are sitting there going, "Uh uh-uh, ain't going to do it. And the reason is that you have a father who is lazy, abusive, a rebel against God, molested you, and you're sitting there going, "Mm mm-mm. I'm not going to imitate my father. And I say, look, the Bible says that we're to imitate the Apostle Paul because he's our father. And you say, well, no, I'm not going to imitate my father. In fact, I don't even want to hear about any fathers being imitated. I have one father, and that's God. But some of you would even say God is more my mother. I I can identify with him being my mother. And so what you want to say is, I will take my pain and make it normative for my spiritual life. I will not live according to God's plan. I will live according to my unbelief and my fear. All right? And that's what is referred to today as the modern morbid, morbid means depressing and deathly, the modern morbid habit of sacrificing the normal on the altar of the abnormal. What you need to do as a Christian is to look to God and have him define your life. To look to God's fatherhood and have his fatherhood define your life. To look at the imitation of a son for the father in the Trinity, Jesus the Son, imitating his father, and to have that be normative for your life. So don't try to squirrel out of this. Don't try to say that your life is different. Your life isn't different. All through history, fathers have been sinful. All through history, God has called us to honor our fathers and mothers, knowing our fathers and mothers are sinful. He knew that, and he's told us, honor your father and mother. And all through life, he's told us to imitate our fathers, to imitate our spiritual fathers, to imitate Jesus Christ as Jesus Christ imitates his father. And so what's happened today is, Everybody's so set on not being an authority, not being a father, not being arrogant, not being anything that smacks of proud. Everybody's so proud of not being proud today, all right, that nobody says to anybody, imitate me. Our fathers don't call us to imitate I'm just a schmuck. All right? Our pastors don't call us to imitate. Our elders don't. The older women, for heaven's sakes, don't be like me. <laughs> I mean, that is absolutely true of churches today. All the older women are busy trying to run and hide. <laughs> you know, No older woman wants anybody to imitate her because she didn't like her life and she doesn't think you should have babies either. <laughs> Was that John Fradiani I heard? <laughs> That was Stephen. Listen, we cannot allow this perverse culture to define who we are, what our aspirations are, and how we'll live, and what we think. We have to let Scripture define it. And so every one of you who's a dad, every one of you that hopes and anticipates being a dad, needs right now to say, I want my son to imitate me. Every mother, I want my daughter to imitate me. And then you'll think, well, that's proud. And I say, no, it's not proud. It's how God made you. It's never proud to do what God commands. 
but everybody will accuse you of being spiritually proud. <laughs> you imagine if I were to walk up front and I'd say, now, uh, you know, imitate me. And we put it up on the web. What would Daryl Hart say about that? Anybody today who calls anyone else to obedience to Scripture is called proud arrogant, and proud. And the truth is, those who have no faith, those who live by their own counsel and their own wisdom in their own mess, from their own fears, are actually the proud ones. Because they define their life. I was explaining to somebody today, serving others is an excellent way, an excellent way of keeping yourself ever from being served. We're very perverse, all of us. We have unbelievably sophisticated ways of doing what we want to do and making it look as if it's righteousness. But the Bible says what? The Bible says, imitate me. And it's a man saying it. It's the Apostle Paul. And when the Apostle Paul says, imitate me, he is simply reflecting the command of Scripture that we are to be like Jesus Christ. Right? And so he says, imitate me as I am in Christ. So it's not that he's pointing to himself. It's that he's pointing to God. People should be able to look at me as a pastor and to see what I'm like and have some idea of what they should be like. And if we don't have that, you should fire me. Now, at this point, some of you are saying, well, (laughs) yeah, but I know your sense. And I say, well, I guess that's our failure. I guess we should be more careful as a church to keep you from knowing my sin. Because then you'd be able to imitate me and not complain. You know? And that's what the church in America is today. It's a bunch of buildings that are set up, a bunch of churches that are set up in such a way that you will never see the pastor's sin. And you'll never have to forgive him. And you'll never be humiliated by having a man with feet of clay preaching and teaching and rebuking you. In other words, we have taken what is clear in Scripture, which is intimacy in the church, and we've, we've completely removed intimacy from the Church of America today. So you can show up at church. When I was in California in Huntington Beach, I worked for a guy. I loved him. But he had just gotten done building a church. And he'd built a church where, as a principle, as a principle, you could go to church with your wife or without her. Like Meryl and me, my wife and I, when we come to church, we don't drive in the same car. So you could go to his church in two separate cars, husband and wife, and never get out of your car. He had built a church like that, where there was a big, big glass wall, and 
People who chose to do so would go into the sanctuary where you sat. People who chose not to would drive up and park in a parking lot. At the beginning of the service, they'd pull this glass wall down the center of the building. The preacher would stand in between the cars and the people, and he'd preach. And that's what megachurches are today. Megachurches intentionally, intentionally as a principle, remove intimacy. They intentionally do this. And tiny Presbyterian churches do this. They intentionally remove intimacy. And what America does is America goes to church, dresses nicely, bleaches its hair, cleans its cars, shows up at church, and you never have to smell the pastor's breath. You never see how he is with his family in his home. You never see how he treats his wife. And we've made a principle of it. But if you look at the Bible, what you see is there is unbelievable intimacy in every page of the New Testament. Every single page there's intimacy. Everything Paul writes is specific to a particular group of people who have names. And not just the names of the people that taught Sunday school for 20 years in a row but the names of people who, for the sake of love of this world, have betrayed God. He names them. Alexander the metal worker. And Yodea and Syntyche, who apparently could never agree with one another in the Lord. And so in the middle of Philippians, you have Yodea and Syntyche popping up all through church history as two women who were like cats with each other. And we never think... Who were Yodia and Syntyche? Anybody here named Yodia? Syntyche? Is there a Syntyche here? You know, we act as if they're not there, but they're there. They're there by name. They're named. All through history, they're named. Intimacy. Can't you just imagine John Piper writing his next book? And Chapter after chapter end with this person who's betrayed Christ and this person who has been faithful. Name by name, you know. (laughs) You know. The banker Tim Bailey, who loves this world and has betrayed us here at Bethlehem Baptist. No. If John was stupid enough to do it, his publisher would take it out. And if the publisher and John were both stupid and put in names of people who had been faithful and people who had been unfaithful and named them by name, you would think that's not an entirely spiritual book. I don't think that will be edifying. But the Bible says all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. That means Yodia and Syntyche are profitable to you. That means not just that it's good for you to hear an exhortation to agree with one another in the Lord, but it's good for you to know the names of the people who weren't agreeing with one another in the Lord. It's good for you to see a shepherd who's naming names in front of the people. (laughs) Now, you're worried that I'll do it, but don't worry, I don't know your name, so you're safe. But next week, if you come back, I'll know your name. No, don't worry. I'd never do that. We, We need to be intimate with each other. We need to be. We need to be. We need to be. We need to be. You need to know my sin. 
and you go, oh, come on, how can we imitate you if you're showing us your sin? Well, because everything isn't sin. And any idiot knows that you're supposed to imitate the good things, not the bad things. That's the problem with our children. They grow up watching us pick our nose, and they think that's what they're supposed to imitate. (laughs) I know, you don't pick your nose, right? We're very good at picking up the bad things and not the good things, aren't we? Listen, in the church, you're supposed to have elders and deacons, and Titus, two women, older women, this is biblical, you're supposed to have them that you can imitate. And you're supposed to know them well enough that when I say imitate them, you're supposed to think, okay, I'm going to imitate Jeff Ewer's faith. All right? Now, what does Jeff Ewer's faith look like? Well, immediately when you start imitating Jeff Ewer's faith, you're going to learn that there's some parts of his faith you shouldn't imitate. Right? He's an elder of this church. I'm going to imitate Tim Bailey's boldness. Well, immediately when you start trying to imitate my boldness, you're going to learn there's some things about my boldness you don't want to imitate. (laughs) Right? Not because you don't want to, but because you know you shouldn't. Right? If you're supposed to imitate the mothering of Ann Wegner, giving herself to her children, the Bible commands it, all right, you're going to immediately learn that as you imitate Anne, there are some things about Anne you shouldn't imitate, right? And so when Paul says, imitate me, I'm sending you Timothy so that he can help you imitate me, you realize that what you're supposed to imitate are the things about him that are good. And that means you have to be able to weigh the difference between the things that are sinful about me and the things that are righteous. And Jesus said, I didn't come for the righteous, I came for the sinners. So the fact that I'm a preacher, I'm up here preaching to you, and I'm a sinner, didn't shock God. I keep telling you what Calvin says. He says, if God wanted to send angels to preach to us, he could have done it, but he chose to send sinners to us. And the good thing about that is you're humiliated because a man who is your inferior is used by God in your life. Think of me as the court jester. No king thinks the court jester is superior to him. And so consequently, he's willing to take rebuke from the court jester. Think of me that way. You can feel absolutely superior to me. That's good. As long as you listen. And you imitate the things I get right. Go ahead and make much of the things I get wrong. Laugh at them. Make jokes about them. When we have a talent show, mock me. That's fine. Talk about Paul's eyesight. What a squirrely little dude he is. Make fun of Paul all you want. But when he says imitate him, know him well enough to know what that means. Right? Listen, in America today, everything is about having no intimacy when it comes to anything that matters. Anonymity is what we want in a church. We want to be able to show up and to leave in our cars with the windows shut. Because we're afraid that nobody will love us if they see our sin. And we know we won't love the others because of their sin. (laughs) And the two go together. We don't love other people 
where they sin, we have no love to cover a multitude of sins. And so consequently, we have no faith that anybody else will love us for our sin. We're censorious. We expect other people to be censorious. And so we end up going to churches where it doesn't matter if you're censorious because nobody knows nobody. And the pastor's high and lifted up and his train fills the temple. (laughs) And so consequently, nobody has to love our pastor because he's high and lifted up and his train fills the temple. You know? He never comes out of the pulpit and acts like an ordinary man. He never says in person what he said in public. And so it's fine. It's a, it's a great exchange. There's no intimacy where it matters. We don't have to imitate him. He never calls us to imitate him. We have fathers we judge. We have preachers that we don't know enough about to judge. And it's just nice, nice, nice. You remember how I've said that authority is always in our lives. And the only question is who will exercise it, whether it will be a benevolent exercise of authority or a malicious evil one. Remember how I've said that? That if you take authority away from fathers and mothers and transfer it to the state, what you end up doing is you end up having the state oppress people because God gave them natural sovereigns to exercise authority in their life, right? So... There will always be critical mass of authority in our lives, and the question is whether that authority will be exercised by the people God ordained to exercise it, or whether the government will take it all away from churches, all away from homes, and abrogate all of it to itself, right? Are you with me on that? And we're now in the middle of the state taking all authority from the states, from the churches, from the families. It's all sliding to Washington, D.C., all right? That's, that's the ordering principle of these United States. All right? Now, as authority is a critical mass, and it will move somewhere, but it will never diminish. There will be the same amount of authority. The same is true of intimacy. There's going to be intimacy. It will either be the intimacy God intended or it will be the intimacy of Satan. And what we see today with Facebook is the intimacy of Satan. Facebook is what you get when the church refuses to be intimate. And so what you end up having is you end up having a whole bunch of people doing things publicly and talking about them that never should be done publicly or talked about. And then you go to church and want a church where there's no intimacy. And it's so perverse. Where does God intend intimacy to be? He intends there to be intimacy between a man and his wife. What is that intimacy supposed to be like? Well, here's an idea. It's supposed to be like there's nobody else in bed except for your wife. But through Facebook and movies and and texting and everything, all of us are going to bed with 25 million women. The one that we just saw in the header of sight meter before we came to church. (laughs) In fact, there were four of them up there. And their bodies are everywhere. And we think that we've chosen it. But what you've really done is refuse to be imitators of Paul. Refuse to listen to him. Refuse to study him. Refuse to be intimate with your elders, with your deacons, with the tightest two women of your church, refuse to be intimate with your wife, and so your whole life is given over to the pigsty. 
And so instead, you're intimate with Ben Roethlisberger. I mean, anybody here want to be intimate with Ben? This is the, this is the quarterback of the Pirates. Or not the Pirates. The Steelers. Does anybody want to be intimate with him? How about Tom Brady? Anybody want to be intimate with Tom Brady? And we know what they do with their bodies sexually. The whole world knows it. You know that you have read things written by people while they sit on the toilet. And you say, well, I didn't know that. I say, oh, come on, you did know that. You did know that. Do you know that you're appalled that I would say that, right? But do you know that you constantly read people things about people that supposedly are your Facebook friends that are much more filthy and stinky than that? You read things that people say in public that they're never supposed to say except in the presence of their mother and she should backhand them when she hears it. And there they are, off in their bedroom, writing this stuff up for all the world to see. And you've got intimacy everywhere. And it's grotesque. It's horrible. You're not supposed to know this stuff about other people. Maybe it has to come out in a doctor's examining room. Maybe it has to come out in the living room with your mother when nobody else is around, and she hits you so hard it never comes out again. Maybe if your mother fails you and the doctor fails you and your teachers fail you and your youth group leaders fail you, maybe it has to come out in my office. But never on Facebook. Never as if there's nothing wrong with it. Listen, you're supposed to go to bed with your wife with nobody else. It's not supposed to be another woman in bed with you. It'll make your wife happy, trust me. You don't need to know your high school sweetheart all over again through Facebook. You don't need to know what your high school sweetheart's doing because you're smart enough to know that if you know what your high school sweetheart is doing, that's a sinful intimacy. You don't need a life other than the one you have. I'll never quote John Lennon except this. John Lennon says, life is what happens while you're waiting for life to happen. Right? This is your life. You don't need another one on Facebook. Virtual reality is neither virtual nor reality. <laughs> okay? Virtual reality is a lie crafted by Satan carefully to keep you running like a mouse in the cage until you die. What you need to do is, okay, are you ready? Be here now. Remember that book? Any of you remember that book? That cosmic Buddhist book of my childhood, square, blue color, you know, the, 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 none of you knew that book. It's like right there next to the whole earth catalog in all your parents' homes. Be here now. It was so deep. Is it really a song now? I didn't know it's a song. But really, people, we need to be here now. Now, where are you right now? Where are you? Where are you? You're among the people of God. You're in Church of the Good Shepherd. (laughs) 
I know it's clear note. I keep getting emails thinking, where's that? What's that? <laughs> we changed our name last week. Now, from now on, we will refer to our former church as the church formerly known as Prince. <laughs> so, you're here, you're in worship, it's intimate, and it's not a mistake. Paul says, imitate me, and that presumes that they knew him. They knew what his breath smelled like. They knew what clothes he wore. They knew his sins, and they knew his righteousness. And he says, imitate me. And then he says, I'm sending you Timothy, and he's going to help you imitate me. So you cannot be involved in a church where there is not intimacy. Whether it's a small church where everybody's repressed, or a large church where everybody has bleach blonde hair. If it's fake, it's not the church of Jesus Christ. If you don't know the preacher well enough to have things about him you don't like, it's not the church of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, now, come on. Are you saying that no church is a church that they don't know the preacher? And I say, well, that's probably hyperbole. I probably shouldn't have said that. But it's bad. It's not good. It's not a principle that you should stand on. It's something you should repent of. Right? Does this all make sense to you? The New Testament is intimate. Facebook should not be intimate. Don't ever think I will read Facebook to find out that you're pregnant. I will never find it out by Facebook because I will not read Facebook. I will get you to read things I write to teach you through Facebook. But if you think you're going to send me a message through Facebook, forget it. I won't ever read it. Okay? And I encourage you to do the same. Teach people through Facebook. Rebuke them through Facebook. But don't talk to us about what you're doing now. I don't want to know. I don't want to know if you're on the john. And that's better than some of the things I could say that you people do put into Facebook. Okay, I don't want to know what movies you just got done watching. Okay? I will know that with my son, but God intends me to know that with my son. All right. Now, can you choose intimacy? Can you choose it? Well, you know what it requires is confidence that you will be accepted as you are. Right? You can't be intimate if you're afraid. Right? And so the question is, has God made the church to be a place that accepts people with warts and bad breath and sin and failures? And that's why I said a while ago that Jesus said he came for sinners and not for the righteous. And you know what's true about churches where there's no intimacy, where everything's anonymous? What's true about those churches is there's no sin in them. You look at people and you think, he's not like me, he's perfect. You look at the preacher, you say, he's not like me, he's perfect. And that's the point. Now, what was going on in Corinth? Well, what was going on in Corinth was they had a whole bunch of teachers in their church that, was make, that were making a point out of how pathetic the Apostle Paul was. And what held them together? Well, look at the text. What held them together was 
verse 18, some have become arrogant. So it was pride that held them together. And what also held them together is their arrogance and their poo-pooing Paul was done because they knew Paul wasn't there to defend himself and to defend God. Because see what it says? It says, some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. And so what you learn there is that there are a lot of people who are real perverse and cocky and arrogant and poo-poo the godly as long as the godly aren't there to defend themselves. In other words, they're postmodern. Because postmoderns are always passive-aggressive. They always act like they're humble, but they just reek of pride while they accuse you of being proud. And they're always unbelievably hostile and aggressive under an exterior that acts as if it's cool. Let's hang, dude. It's cool. And the minute you turn your back on them, they have a knife in your back. This is the nature of departmental politics at a university. A bunch of intellectuals who cop a posture as being very accepting and very tolerant and very diverse and very sort of integrated. And the minute you turn your back, you'll find how integrated they actually are. They're monolithic. And, and, and what is the monolith? It's not serving the students or truth. It's their pride. That's the monolith. And the same thing is true in the church. If you go to a church, look what else holds them together. Notice this. I'll come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. So in other words, those who are unfaithful, who Paul is warning them against, are proud, we see that, are particularly aggressive when the man isn't there to defend himself. They shoot from the shadows, and they use lots of words, and they're impotent. They have no power. None. Now, isn't this postmodernism? <laughs> lots of words, completely impotent, no power, and they actually make a principle out of having no power. You know? And unbelievably arrogant, and unbelievably cowardly in how they attack you. They do it when your back is turned. This is what Paul's dealing with in Corinth. This is, this is the intimacy he's dealing with. And he's like, you know, could, could I show you a softer side of my... Sp- now, I, I'm using a parody here. I'm going to tell you what Paul doesn't do, but I'm going to act as if this is what he does. But I want you to see how different it is than what he really does. So I'm going to play the part. So the Apostle Paul has people attacking him who are arrogant, who act as if they're just servants of the people. And they have lots of words and no power. And so the Apostle Paul comes along and he says, Hey, you know, I've been, I've been like, I've been on retreat. And I've been like sort of trying to get in touch with some of the deeper things, you know. And it's occurred to me, you know, I've had the thought that, you know, I wonder, I wonder whether we could find common ground here. You know, I wonder whether in our better moments, 
whether we might not be able to find a way that we can be together. A, a, a sort of a culture of acceptance. A place of safety. A place where we can be accepted as we are. Is, is, is this, is, am I crazy? Do any of you share? Do you, could you, like, you know, Come sit in my lap. Can't you just imagine the Apostle Paul writing like that? But instead he says, be imitators of me. I'm sending you Timothy. Oh, you guys are real hot. Oh, boy, you're bad, bad to the bone as long as I'm not there. But maybe the Lord's going to send me there. And if I send there, am I going to come with a rod or am I going to come with love and mercy? You watch, I'll be there. And you go, (laughs) I like the other Tim better. And I say, listen, come on, come on, come on, come on. What are we about here? Are we about what you think of me? Is that what this is about? Is that what this is about? Tell me, if, if that's what this is about, then I'm in the wrong place. But if what this is about is the kingdom of God, if what this is about is holiness, if what this is about is eternity then I want the Apostle Paul. I want him. (laughs) I love him. Because he kicks my butt every time he picks up his pen. And he does it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit wasn't shocked to find Paul saying, be imitators of me. I'm sending you Timothy. He's going to make you be imitators of me. And if you don't do it, oh, you're real big bad while I'm gone, right? I'll show up if God wills it. And what do you want? You want the rod? And we go, you know, that's a little bit arrogant. I mean, what grown-up would talk to other grown-ups about using the rod on them? (laughs) You guys, listen. Every single thing in our culture conspires to get your eye off the ball, to get your eye on yourself, To have you be narcissists gazing at your image in the pool, right? And loving yourself. But you can't love God then. You can't do it. You cannot love God and love yourself. You can't do it. If Christianity is the way for you to be an attorney like your mother is, for you to be a doctor like your father is, for you to be sophisticated, for you to have a PhD and be a Christian at the same time, for you to receive the adulation and the respect and the honor that is your due, then Christianity is dead. Because Christianity is a wound that was completely calculated by God to be more mortal than being drawn and quartered in the Middle Ages. It was meant to leave you quivering on the cross with no hope but the blood of Jesus. That's the Christian faith. And so the truth is, when you die to your pride, then there's hope for you.
And if you're not dying to your pride, if you haven't gotten fired, (laughs) you know, there's no hope for you. The truth is, if you're childless, there's hope for you. The truth is, if you have 10 children, there's no hope for you. But that's perverted today, so I won't get into that. The truth is, if you have a good marriage, there's no hope for you. The truth is, if your marriage is bad and you plead with God to help you, there's hope for you. The truth is, if you're rich, there's no hope for you. The truth is, if you're poor and you get your babies through Hoosier Healthcare, <laughs> there's hope for you. Right? Now listen, don't come to me afterwards and say, well, I'm a doctor. I know you're a doctor. Luke was a doctor. Don't come to me and say, well, I'm rich. I know you're rich. Abraham was rich. Don't say, well, I have a good marriage. I know you have a good marriage. Isaac and Rebecca had a good marriage. Come on. Look at your failures. Look at your sins. Look at your pleading with God. And realize that's the place of your faith. That's the place of your growth. That's where you're sanctified. Don't try to cover it up. Don't try to hide it from people. In the church, work from strength. Work from strength. And so what does that mean? That means you won't work from your law degree. Because that's foolishness. You will work from your inability to love your wife as you should. You will confess it to other men and ask for prayer. And then you're strong. Remember how it says in Scripture that the poor man should glory in his riches and the rich man should glory in his poverty? Do you remember that? Everything in the kingdom of God is flipped upside down. The things that in the world you would be ashamed of are the things that you're to be proud of in the church. What was Paul proud of? He was proud of his weakness. He was proud of his thorn in the flesh. This is the grand conspiracy. We're the original postmoderns, right? But it's not an act with us, it's true. We glory in our weakness. All right? Now, that doesn't mean that you should cultivate the ability to get F's on your report card. Come on. Walk by faith. Do your work as unto the Lord. Make babies. Get married. Live in chastity and celibacy. Be submissive. Listen to the preacher. Honor it. Imitate him. But when everything is done, realize what can wash away my sin Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me clean again? Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I, nothing but the blood of Jesus, okay? Last night, Heather and her Husband Doug and their family came over to um, to our house for dinner, and I had been studying 
This will be painful. Fasten your safety belts. I had been studying, and I came downstairs for dinner, and little Bailey looked up at me, and she said, Papa, did you take a shower? And I said, no. And she said, why are you wet? And I said, well, I was taking a bath. And she said, did you have any clothes on? And I thought, you know, I don't want to talk to my little granddaughter about whether or not I had clothes on in the bathtub. You know? And so I said, well, yes, of course. I had clothes on. Yes, I had pants on, and I had a shirt on. And she said, were you lying down? And I said, no, no, no. I was standing up in the bathtub with clothes on. <laughs> now, <laughs> well, but listen, here's the deal. This is what the church does today. The church has preachers who are clothed and standing in the bathtub. Elders, Titus two women, who are clothed and standing in the bathtub. And we all know that they're naked, but we all agree to lie with each other, that there are just some people who take baths standing with clothes on. (laughs) The preacher, that's helpful. And, of course, the elders and the Titus two women, you know, We don't have any sinners. We don't have anybody that takes their clothes off for a bath and lies down because that's so weak. (laughs) And it's so gross. Do you understand this? What we need is to be truthful with one another. We need to see that he has flesh like I have. The Apostle Paul is our brother in Christ. He's not Jesus. And so when he says what we are to do, we are to obey a sinful man that takes his clothes off and lies down in the bathtub. And God isn't surprised by that when his words end up a part of the sacred canon of Scripture. God isn't surprised when David shows up, an adulterer and murderer, writing our prayer book, the book of Psalms. (laughs) You know? All right, I'll give up for today. Let's pray.